Good morning. It's great to be with you again this morning here at Word of Life. Always a pleasure to share the Word of God with you. And if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel in the seventh chapter. Mark chapter seven. How many of you know that um, that sometimes we can know something is wrong with us, but we don't always know what's really wrong with us? Sometimes we know something's wrong, but we don't know what's really wrong. And, and even if we did know what's really wrong, we wouldn't necessarily know what to do about it. Well, uh, I'll be a little vulnerable with you this morning. Uh, for the first 34 years of my life, I'm 35, if you are wondering, uh, for the first 34 years of my life and the first 12 years of my marriage, I would classify myself as a quiet sleeper. Some of you know where I'm going with this. But somehow, in the past six to eight months, something has shifted in me physiologically. I'm not sure exactly what it is that happened, but my wife has informed me that I now am a snorer. And uh, not just light snoring, not just medium snoring, she says, I snore like a chainsaw. And of course, uh, I didn't believe her, and so she recorded me while I was sleeping so that she could show me the video the next morning. And she, showed, she made me watch it, and she said, now do you see what I'm talking about? Look at what I have to go through. <laughs> do you have compassion on me now, she said. And I said to her in the most loving way possible, I said, well, my dearest wife, you married me for better or for worse. And she lovingly responded, well, you'd better figure it out. <laughs> and of course, so then I, I, I uh, began to do some research and try to figure out how exactly to address uh, this problem and this issue, and I have found that there are a number of possible uh, sources of this issue and a number of possible solutions. I found that uh, you can snore because of congestion or sickness. Uh, you can snore because you begin to gain a little bit of weight, and that, of course, is a possibility. Um, you can snore because uh, you're getting older and things are changing in your body. You can also snore because you do not have the right pillow. And I found that they have these pillows that, that listen to you while you sleep. And if it hears you snoring, it will inflate the pillow or deflate the pillow so that the angle of your head will be just right and will stop you from snoring. Uh, I, uh, I also found out that you can start to try to sleep on your side, and they recommend you get a full-body pillow so you can sleep on your side, and then they recommended this. I've never heard of this before. Maybe some of you have done this. I don't know. But they recommend that you tape tennis balls to your back so that you will not be tempted to roll over and <laughs> sleep on your back. Has anybody ever tried that? <laughs> you can wear nasal strips. You can stay hydrated. You can avoid alcohol. That's not an issue for me. I'm Assemblies of God minister, credential with the Assemblies of God. You heard that. Well, anybody that's listening. They also have anti-snoring sleep devices. And if you're a guy and you've ever listened to sports radio, you understand that they have these commercials out there with Jimmy from Zipa. Anybody heard these commercials? Jimmy from Zipa. And he says, if you want to stop snoring, you'll get a Zipa. And it makes everybody happy. It's basically a mouth guard that you have to wear at night that holds your jaw open the right way. I said, my wife's going to love this. I'm going to lean over to her at night and say, hey, sweetie, <laughs> good night. This is great. 
maybe I need to try some natural remedies. I don't know. My wife says if I have the exact perfect combination of essential oils that will solve every problem known to man. We know that, right? Essential oils solve every problem known to man. I'm still working on figuring out this solution, so I would ask that you pray for me. Uh, or rather, I should say pray for my wife. She is the one who is suffering. Um, but I say this to say this. Sometimes we know that something's wrong with us, but we don't exactly know what is wrong with us. You with me? Sometimes we know something's wrong, but we don't know exactly what's wrong. And even if we did know exactly what's wrong, we don't necessarily know what to do about it. And this is true in a very broad sense in our world. As humans, we inherently know that we are imperfect and that there is something wrong with us. And there's something wrong with our world. If you are here today and you're a Christ follower or you would consider yourself a religious person, you understand that uh, we deal with the problem of sin in our world. We have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, but sometimes finding the exact solution as to what that is and to how we can make it better is a difficult thing. And if we're a religious people, we, we naturally understand that, that there's, a, there's a sin issue in our world. But maybe, maybe you're here today and you're an irreligious person. Maybe you're here today and, and you don't believe in God, and you don't believe there is a God or there is objective morality. But uh, I would venture to say that you can't in good conscience say that, that you are perfect or that the world is as it should be. You understand that in a planet of 7.4 billion people, we have a sense of there's a sense of inconsequentiality to our lives, a sense of longing to try to find purpose and meaning and to find out what is really broken in the world that we live in. So we understand that something is wrong with us, but that, that really isn't the issue because uh, every religion on the planet acknowledges that there is something wrong with us. The question is, what is really wrong with us and what do we really do about it? And Jesus talks about this issue in Mark's gospel, the seventh chapter. Jesus addresses this very issue. In Mark's gospel, uh, we are introduced to this particular story in the life of Jesus and his disciples. We see that a group of religious leaders from Jerusalem have, have traveled to Galilee where Jesus is preaching and teaching. They travel uh, from Jerusalem to Galilee to see Jesus and to examine what he is doing. And of course, these are not just any Jewish leaders. They are, these are Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem. Uh, they are from uh, the center of where the Jewish faith uh, is, uh, is oriented. And so they are considered highly important in their culture. And they are, if anyone is considered holy or righteous, it is these religious leaders. And they come to Jesus and his disciples, and the first thing they notice is this is that Jesus and his disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. Everybody say, ew. <laughs> now, this is, this is more than just a germ phobia. In fact, uh, 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 understanding germs and, and microbes was not, a, not a, a, an understanding that they had in that culture. This was more than that. They were, they were upset because Jesus and his disciples were not following the Jewish ceremonial hand-washing rituals that they carried in their traditions. 
You see, the Jews had a number of traditions uh, that uh, surrounded uh, their culture and their understanding of the law, and, and washing was a big part of it. They had rules about when you had to wash and how you had to wash. And uh, you had to wash your hands every time before you ate. You had to wash uh, certain parts of your body when you would come back from the marketplace. And you had, not only did you have to do that, but you had to wash your dishes a certain way. The Jewish Mishnah Uh, which is a compilation of the Jewish traditions that surround uh, the Jewish law, has 35 pages devoted to how you should wash your dishes. Pretty awesome. I'll send a copy of that home with you today. You can get it on your way out. Now, to be clear, this kind of ceremonial washing was actually not required in the law of Moses. It was not given to them as God's law, but it was a tradition that was kept by the Jews. Now, the Jews considered tradition, uh, they, they looked at it in a very unique way. They considered tradition to be a fence around the law. And so, God has given His law to His people. He said, these are the laws I want you to follow. These are the laws I want you to obey. And they added these traditions as a fence around the law, as a way to protect themselves so that they would ensure that they would always be obedient to the law of God. And many of these traditions, while well-intentioned, went a little bit too far. I'll give you some, a few examples. There's, of course, hundreds of examples that we could use, but there's a few very interesting examples. One is that on the Sabbath day, you were not allowed to look into a mirror. Not because of vanity, not because you may focus too much on your outward appearance, but because if you looked into a mirror, you might find a gray hair. And if you find a gray hair, you may be tempted to pluck it out. And if you plucked it out, you would be working on the Sabbath day. That's Jewish tradition. They had another uh, same tradition about the Sabbath day. They would say, if you, if you would wear false teeth on the Sabbath day, they might fall out, and you might be tempted to pick them up. And if you picked up those false teeth, you would be working on the Sabbath day. They'd also said, on the Sabbath day, you're not allowed to carry around a handkerchief to blow your nose, but you could wear one if you tied it around your neck. So you could wear it, but you couldn't use it. And so, they added all of these traditions to their law with the understanding that the better you kept these traditions, the better you would keep God's law, and consequentially, the holier you would be. And so, seeing the disciples blatantly ignore their traditions, they ask Jesus this. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 5. They said to Jesus, why, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat first without performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus responds to them, verse 6, you hypocrites. Jesus always gets right to the point, doesn't he? You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. 
Jesus is saying some very significant things here to the religious leaders. He's saying, first he's saying this, he's saying there is a disconnect between what's external and what's internal. There's a disconnect between what's outside and what's inside. He said these these individuals, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They are good at, at saying and doing what is right on the outside, but inside the motives of their heart are completely wired the wrong way. And then he says this, he says they substitute traditions for God's law. Traditions focus on the outward, but God's law focuses on your heart. And in all of their attempts, in all of their attempts to be holy and be righteous and to follow God's law perfectly on the outside, all these traditions that they added to protect the law, they actually began to elevate these traditions above God's law, and in so doing, they missed the heart of God's law itself. They elevated the traditions above God's law itself and missed the heart of God's law. This is, this is easy to do today. This is easy to do today as followers of Jesus Christ when we elevate traditions and we elevate preferences and we elevate cultural expressions of Christianity that are, uh, we value over what Christ has actually called us to do. And Jesus calls this out. He goes on, verse 9, he says this. He says, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. And then he begins to use this example. He uses this example of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, it says this. It says to honor your father and your mother. Pretty basic commandment. But the implication of that was very significant in Jewish culture. The implication meant this, is that your parents loved and cared for you in your young age, and in their old age, you as a child were to take care of your parents. Very simple. But the Jewish leaders had found a loophole to this, because taking care of your parents could be very expensive. And maybe if you didn't have the greatest relationship with your parents and it was expensive, maybe you didn't want to do that. And so they found not only a loophole, they found a spiritual loophole. And the spiritual loophole was this, is that they could declare that all of their possessions were devoted to God. And if all of their possessions were devoted to God, they could not allocate those resources elsewhere. Of course, this didn't mean that they gave all of their possessions to God. That would be ridiculous because then they would be paupers. But no, they were able to say, oh, everything I have belongs to God, and therefore I cannot give it to my parents. They found a spiritual way to sidestep the very law of God. And so Jesus says this. He says, you're actually using your traditions to manipulate God's law for your own benefit. They became so entrenched in the details of the rules that they can and cannot follow, not for the sake of righteousness, but for the sake of manipulating the outcomes in their benefit, for their benefits and for their favor. My children try to do this all the time. They try to get the details right so that they can manipulate the outcome in their favor. If I am not extremely specific in my instructions to them, they will find a loophole I'll give you an example. My wife was downstairs the other day. She was cleaning the basement, and she called upstairs to the kids, and she said, hey, kids, if any of you are not doing anything right now, get down here and help me clean the basement. My oldest son yells down, I'm sorry, I can't come down right now. 
And my wife says, why, what are you doing? And he said, I'm breathing. (laughs) We can use the details to manipulate a favorable outcome instead of following the spirit of the law itself. I love this this commentary on this passage from the Gospel Transformation Bible. It says this. It says, Our sinful hearts inevitably twist God's good law towards selfish, self-excusing, self-justifying, or proud purposes. And after exposing all of this, Jesus then begins to move to the center of the issue. Let's look here in verse 14. It says, then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It is not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. In verse 17, it says, Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Of course, Jesus didn't use a parable. He wasn't speaking in a parable, and they missed it once again. So Jesus says here in verse 18, he says, don't you understand either? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then into the sewer. By saying this, he declared every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And all the bacon lovers in the room said, Amen. And then verse 20, and this is where he hones it right in. He says this. He says, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. It is what comes from inside that defiles you. So now we get to the root of the issue. And Jesus, Jesus is saying something, he's saying something revolutionary here. In fact, in fact commentator uh, and sco- biblical scholar William Barclay calls this the most revolutionary passage in all of the New Testament. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying it's not, it's not what you do on the outside that is wrong with you, it's what's inside of you. It's what's inside of you. And then he begins to list What is inside of them? Verse 21, he says, For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. I feel like I, feel like I need to take a bath just after reading that. And Jesus is saying all of, these, all of these vices, murder, adultery, lust, deceit, pride, envy, the list goes on. He says these come from the heart, and they are in your heart, whether you've actually done them or not. Imagine for a moment, if you would, the worst thought you have ever had. Imagine for a moment, if you would, 
the worst desire you have ever had. Now, maybe, maybe you've never acted on that thought. Maybe you've never acted on that desire. I hope not. Maybe you've found a way to suppress and push away that thought and not think about it and not dwell on it and not let it control your life. But I would ask you this. Where did that thought come from? Where did that thought originate? It doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. It comes from the heart. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes, Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so then Jesus comes along and he says this. He says, you, you think what you need to do is to clean up your actions, but what you really need to do is to clean up your heart. He says, don't, don't clean up your actions. You need to clean up your heart. And what we see from the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day so accurately reflects the natural inclinations of the human heart. And that is this, is that we attempt to find inward cleansing through outward change. And if we examine what Jesus is really saying here, he's saying this, he's saying heart cleansing is not an outside-in process, it's an inside-out process. Heart cleansing is not an outside-in process, it's an inside-out process. Now, outside-in cleaning seems appealing, but it doesn't work. Outside-in cleaning seems appealing, but it doesn't work. Well, what are some ways that we attempt outside-in cleansing? Well, the first and perhaps maybe the biggest issue that, that maybe even most of us in this room deal with, and that is we attempt outside-in cleaning through religion. We attempt outside-in cleaning by making sure that we are good human beings who follow God's laws. And doesn't that sound noble? Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't that sound like what we're supposed to do? But that's what religion is when we follow the rules and the moral codes and we make sure that everybody else does the same. But all that is is outside-in cleaning. It doesn't work. We can attempt outside-in cleaning by simply trying to do good works, to be a good human being. We can compare ourselves to others and say, well, uh, I may not be the best person in the world, but at least I'm, I'm better than this person and that person. And I, I would guess that if everything was put on a scale and all the good people were on one side and all the bad people were on the other, that I would definitely fall on the good side. I'd be better than most. But it doesn't work. We can attempt to find outside-in cleaning through influencing our societal structures. We can get involved in politics and, and have a voice and try to attempt to say, hey, let's make sure that the laws of our country and the laws of our land are godly and good. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to be involved in, but I will tell you this, there is no human law that changes the human heart. There is no human law that can change a human heart. It's outside-in cleaning. And so, maybe we try to discipline ourselves. 
Maybe we try to say, uh, I'm, I'm going to wake up earlier every day. I'm going to pray longer every day. I'm going to read scripture longer every day. I'm going to do all of these things that are right and good and pure and just, and somehow it is going to cleanse my heart. But those, while those are all good things to do, those are outside-in processes. And Jesus says, it's not about an outside-in process. It's an inside-out process. And when we go, we try to clean ourselves from the outside in, it is like we're trying to scrub a stain that will never come out. If you have ever uh, read or watched uh, the play Macbeth by William Shakespeare, there's a very powerful scene in, the, in one of the later acts, and it involves Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, if you know the story, Lady Macbeth uh, is the one who is responsible for plotting to murder her husband and to overtake the kingdom. And in this scene, she is sleeping, and she is talking in her sleep, and there's these two attendants that are listening in while she begins to talk in her sleep. And as she talks in her sleep, she is trying to scrub out the stain of blood from her hands, and she can't do it. She's trying to wash her hands so that, that there is not a smell of blood on her fingers, but she can't do it. And she's scrubbing, and she's scrubbing, and she's scrubbing, and it eventually drives her insane. And this is, this is what we do when we attempt an outward-in type of cleansing in our lives. We are scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing a stain that we cannot get out on our own. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying you can't fool God with outward cleanliness when the problem is inward filth. You can't fool God with outward cleanliness when the problem is inward filth because he sees right through it. And in saying this, Jesus is not only diagnosing the problem of the Jewish religious leaders, but also the fundamental problem of every religion on the planet, and also the fundamental problem of every human heart. We have an inside problem, a heart problem, and there is no amount of action, outside action, religious rule-keeping that can fix it. The natural tendency of human religion is to try to solve an internal problem by external methods, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So what do we do about this? How do we, how do we reverse that cycle? How do we become clean on the inside? What do we have to do? What do we have to change? Maybe, is, is it just a matter of, of me thinking the right thoughts and trying to focus on the right things and, and, and think pure thoughts and, and make sure that, that my attitudes are, is, is in the right place, that, the, that my motives for doing what is good is in the right place? Is that what it's about, or is it more than that? And, and if, it's, if it's that, then, then how do I even tell? How do I even tell if my heart is clean, if it's an inside problem? Because you see, Jesus is not only, he's not only saying here that you cannot use external methods to clean an internal problem, he's saying this, he's saying you can't judge whether a person is clean or not by uh, external metrics. You can't tell from the outside. You see, someone, someone who is clean on the outside by external standards can have a heart that's turned away completely from God. 
And someone who is filthy on the outside by external standards can have a heart that is in just the right place to turn towards God. If you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, you understand that one son comes back to his father after rebelling, and he's covered in dirty rags from feeding pigs after he ran away from his father. And standing nearby is another son who is faithful, hardworking, and well-dressed. But only one of those sons has a heart that is right with the father. And this, this is perhaps the most revolutionary part of the, of the gospel message, is that rule keepers are just as lost as rule breakers. Rule keepers are just as lost as rule breakers. And so Jesus says, stop focusing on the outward and focus on the inward. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus is saying more than just check your heart and check your motives and check your attitudes. No, I think he's saying, I think he's saying something much more radical and something much more significant. And maybe that's something that is difficult for us to swallow as good and decent human beings. He's not just saying that some people have a heart problem. He's saying that everyone has a heart problem. Every human heart is dirty on the inside. Every human heart requires cleansing on the inside. Every human heart is broken and has something wrong with it and is in need of reparation. And here's, here's the, the difficult thing, the most difficult thing for our hearts to swallow, and that's this, is that we are powerless to fix the brokenness of our hearts. We can't do it. All of our best attempts at righteous living fall unbelievably short. All of our best motives, all of our purest thoughts are flawed to the core. Listen, listen to what William Beveridge, he's a preacher from the 1700s, listen to what he writes about this. He says, I cannot pray, but I sin. He's saying, even when I pray, I find myself sinning. He said, I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give an alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. Nay, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my very confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need washing, and the very washing of my tears still need to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. And so the answer is not, is not simply don't focus on outside cleaning and, and try to clean yourself from the inside out. No, that's not the answer. The answer is this, is that we're all dirty on the inside and we all need a Savior. And that, my friends, is why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Jesus Christ is the only one who can give us a clean heart. That's right. He's the only one. 
It is His perfect life, His perfect obedience, and His perfect sacrifice on the cross that allows us to be seen as clean and pure before God. It's the work of Jesus Christ. Not only that, when we receive the work of Jesus Christ, when we receive what He has done, the Holy Spirit begins to work in us and begins to elevate the person and the work of Jesus in us, and Christ begins to do something amazing in us. Not only does He make our hearts clean, He begins to make our hearts new. And so the answer to our heart problem is not try harder. It is not try to be a better person. The answer to our heart problem is to trust in the person of Jesus Christ completely and fully. I'm going to give you this, just this small snippet from, from John's Gospel, chapter 6, because I think it accurately reflects what, what the heart of this message is. John chapter 6, verse 28, these, these people come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus this. They said, Jesus, what, what are the things that God wants us to do? Jesus, what does God want us to do? Jesus, tell us, tell us the rules that we need to obey in order to make God happy. And Jesus answered this. The work God wants you to do is this. Believe in the one that God sent. Believe in the one that God sent. Only Jesus Christ can solve the deepest dysfunctions of our heart. And Jesus didn't come just to make us clean. He came to make us new from the inside out. And when we begin to understand this, when when we begin to understand who we are and who Jesus is and what He has done for us, when we understand that, that does some very powerful things for us. It builds in us two very important qualities that I believe are the foundation for everything else God can do through us. He builds in us humility and He builds in us grace. He builds in us humility because when I understand who I am, when I understand the way my own heart is, I understand that there is no one who is better or worse than me, is that we're all the same when we come to the foot of the cross. And I understand that grace can naturally pour out of my life because I know, I know that what Jesus Christ did for me is the same thing He's done for every one of you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? As we examine our own hearts this morning, I would ask us to think about what is, what is our response in this moment. <clears throat> First, if you, are, if you are here today and you have never received God's free gift of salvation for you, if you have never put your trust fully in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that right now is, is a great moment to do that. You may have come here today asking and wondering, what do I need to do better? What do I need to change? How can I become a better person? That's not, that's not, that's not what Christianity is about. That's not what following Jesus Christ is about. It's not about who, how good you are or how good you could be, because we all have broken and wicked hearts that need redeeming. 
the question I would ask that you would ask yourself today is this, is that will you allow Jesus Christ to do for you what you can never do for yourself? To cleanse your heart and your soul and to make you whole and new and to bring you into the family of God as one of His own? Would you receive what Jesus Christ has done for you today? And for those of you in this room who would call yourself a Christ follower, I would say this. Perhaps it's time this morning for some confession. Not, not confession of outward sins, but confessions of the motives of your heart. And maybe, maybe even deeper than that. Confessions that acknowledge that our hearts have not fully rested and trusted in Christ alone as our answer. You see, that's what I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's not try harder. It is trust more fully. And so I would ask you today, can you rest in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf? Can you allow him to do what only he can do in your life and to make your heart new? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you, you did not leave us to our own vices, to our own selves, but Lord, you sent your son Jesus Christ to rescue us. And Father, today we, we confess, Lord, once again, that our hearts are desperately wicked and in need of you. God, we, we lean not on our own righteousness. We lean not on our own ability to do what is right. God, we lean not on any outward action that could produce an inward change because, God, we know that our hearts are, are defiled at the core. We need you. We need a Savior. And, God, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ who in, in, in once for all uh, came and gave himself as a sacrifice for us so that our hearts could be made new and clean and pure before you. God, we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. And Lord, we confess today that there have been many moments in our lives where our hearts have not fully trusted in you, but we have looked to find outward cleansing to an inward problem. Jesus, once again, we just come back to the place where we say, it is only because of you. It is only because of who you are. It is only because of what you have done for us that we have any merit to stand before you. And God, it is our prayer today that as we understand that truth, you would produce in us humility and grace, and you would allow that to transform our hearts and the world around us as you work inside of us. Jesus, we give our hearts and our lives to you once again in your precious name.